Hebrews chapter 2. Now, as I said earlier, we are in now a couple of chapters into a challenging teaching. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. I have 66 of them. But this one takes some going through. I'm going to give you seven points this morning. Each point could stand alone as a sermon, an entire teaching. So my encouragement to you is if at any point we move on from a point to something else and you're still struggling with grasping or understanding, dig in. Make that the focus of of your Bible study this week. Think about it. Process it. Hebrews 2 verse 9. But we do see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for Him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one, for which reason He is not ashamed to call them brethren saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for Your inspiration and for Your authorship of this Word and, Lord Jesus, of our salvation. And I pray that You'll help us to understand it, to grasp it, to not be afraid, Lord, to delve deeper into these things, to seek greater understanding. But, Father, I pray truly for revelation by Your Spirit of the things we're going to talk about this morning. Bring us closer to Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I never get tired of talking about Jesus. I never get tired of hearing His name. I love conversations that revolve around Jesus. I love when we end up hearing His name. I love those moments when things maybe aren't going so well during the day and you hear the name of Jesus and suddenly things get better. Or your heart lightens. Or at least your hope increases. Because you see, Hebrews 13.8 tells us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Let's say that together again. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Who He was then, who He is now, who He will always be, is the same. He is faithful. He's consistent. He's trustworthy. You can count on Him. He does not change. And yet He's never boring. He is the same. And that's what makes this question we're in the middle of here all the more remarkable. What if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. As we pointed out, so the song went back in 1995. Now, what if God was one of us I like? Just a slob like one of us. That kind of upset some people when Joan Osborne sang that song. The reality is, with the possible exception of a piece of rogue shawarma on the robe, I doubt Jesus was ever a slob. But I have to allow for the possibility that while having tilapia with the apostles, He may have gotten some oil on His sleeve. I have to accept that perhaps, perhaps, Jesus had a scruffy day from time to time. Now, that bothers people just hearing that. 
But honestly, yesterday was a scruffy day for me. All day long, scruffy. Sweats, a t-shirt. I was changing the garbage disposal. I was vacuuming. It was just a scruffy day. Got up in the morning, the baseball cap went on, and that's how I was all day long until right before bed when I looked at Cheryl and said, I never took a shower today. I never shaved. I am my father. I told you before, Saturdays with Dad were just, you didn't want to be within a three-foot radius because, whoa, I had a scruffy day. And I like the idea, the thought, that Jesus could be scruffy. Why? Well, I like the idea of relatability. That He relates to us. That I can relate to Him. Not that He was a a slob, but that He could be. Not that He stubbed His toe, but that He could. You know, not that He dealt with human stuff, but that He was flesh and blood, like John 1.14 tells us, the Word became flesh. Sarks in the Greek. Which is the, the lowest description of, of flesh. It's skin. It's sinew. It's the fleshy stuff that makes up the, the human body. Sarks. The Word became that. Flesh. And dwelt among us. Jesus in genes. The Savior in sweats. Holiness in a hoodie. He relates. And what ties together everything that we're going to look at this morning is is one consistent theme. And it is profound in and of itself, and it is the one of usness of Jesus. We call that the incarnation. God in an earth suit. God like you, God like me, in every way, in understanding, in comprehension, in life. Now, looking at Hebrews chapter 2, the first eight verses, we listened in on the pastor's sermon last week as he began to address this question. What if God became man? Joan Osborne's hit song in 1995 was literally 1995 years behind the times. Because Paul wrote in Galatians 4 verse 4, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. What if God? What if God? We don't have to ask the question. It's not what if God, it's God did. He was. But as we continue this morning, we're going to see more now of the second part of the question, one of us. The one of usness of Jesus Christ. Let's pick it up in verse 9. But we do see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. Listen, Psalm 8, which is what's quoted in verses 6-8 through of Hebrews chapter 2. Psalm 8 is that psalm as we looked at last week, not only of the eminence of God, but of the exaltation of man. It speaks of God's design, His plan for humanity to find glory and honor, to be exalted. But we blew it. We have not been exalted. When we try to even exalt ourselves, we sin because we become prideful. But in Jesus Christ, humanity discovered exaltation. God made flesh, a human being. Jesus, the perfect man, is the exaltation of man. He reflects that. We talked several months ago, maybe even a year or so ago, about how Jesus was the perfect example of a Jew. That He was, in all the prophecies of Israel and about Israel, prophecies like that Israel would be the light of the world, well, guess what? In Jesus, it happened. Because Jesus, as a Jew, was the perfect Jew, fulfilled what it meant to be Jewish. In every way, shape, and form to the the whole focus of God, the, the, the glory of God, that a Jewish person would be the light of the world. He was. In the same way, as a human being, He is the exalted man. He is the fulfillment, if you will, of Psalm 8. In and of Himself. But He found that fulfillment. That fulfillment came, note this in verse 9, because of the suffering of death. 
The suffering of death. Death is the most common aspect of life. It is the one thing that we all absolutely have in common, that we all share, that with the exception of a select group of people who will happen to be alive at the time of Jesus calling us home, and I currently plan on being one of them, everybody has death in common. Death is a sure thing. Job understood this. He said in Job 30 verse 23, I know that you will bring me to death and to the house of meeting for all the living. Death is a commonality. But death is yet hard to swallow. We don't want to deal with it. We don't like to think about it. Especially in American culture, we do everything we can to ignore, avoid, and have nothing to do with death. And when death does occur, and funerals and memorials have to happen, we don't like that. It's a shock to the system. Because we live in a culture that says, that's not a thing. Well, it is a thing. It's a a certain thing. And death stings. Death hurts. 1 Corinthians 15.56 tells us the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. We die because we sin. That's something you don't ever want to say when you're doing a memorial service. You know, you realize that she passed away because she was a big fat sinner. That doesn't bring comfort to the family. But the reality is death entered the world because of sin in the first place. And it stayed in the world because every single one of us sinned. None of us are exempt from that. All of us have sinned, the Bible says, and fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore, death remains as this constant for humanity, and that's hard to swallow. But the writer says Jesus tasted it. Because of the suffering of death, He was crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. And I want you to know what He means by taste. There's a famous quote that is connected with this verse. Um, from a 4th to 5th century bishop. His name was John Chrysostom. And Chrysostom said, As a physician, though not needing to taste the food prepared for the sick man, yet in his care for him, tastes first himself, that he may persuade the sick man with confidence to venture on the food. That for Chrysostom, the idea was that Jesus tasted death so that we would realize death isn't so bad. That's like a parent doing that for a child. Now, I've tried that with my son, David, and it doesn't matter. I can say, look, son, it tastes good. I'll try some. And I try it with a big smile on my face. And he just looks at me shaking his head. No, if it's not macaroni and cheese, I'm not in. French fries, okay. Anything else, no. (laughs) Chrysostom got it wrong. When this verse talks about Jesus tasting death, he got the dessert before the main course misses this point that Jesus didn't taste death to encourage us that it was no worse than Brussels sprouts. You know, I'm going to taste death and I'll show you it's alright, it's not so bad. No, death is bad. Death is ugly. Death is not what we want. It's life. Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly, right? But it's the devil who steals and kills and destroys. It's sin that brings death into the world. So what's the point? The point is that Jesus did not just sample death on His tongue to prove that it was edible. The word taste in verse 9 is guomai, and guomai means to eat, to experience, to consume. Jesus did not just taste death. He swallowed it whole. He consumed it. He ate every last bite. The plate was clean when Jesus tasted death. And it's a fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 25 verse 8 says, He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. He'll remove the reproach of His people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And in His death, Jesus redeemed us from the sting of sin, the curse of the law. He satisfied the eternal judgment against sin that resulted in death. So that, 1 Corinthians 15.54, when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. He ate death. 
He swallowed it whole, that it might be itself swallowed up. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he's declaring here in verse 9, that because of the suffering of death, Jesus became the exaltation of man, that we too might follow him and be lifted up. It's awesome. Death swallowed whole. Now, I'm going to talk more about death in a little bit, so don't worry, it'll come back. But, listen, in the one of usness of Jesus, the incarnation, it's more than just God at the front of the chow line. It's, it's far deeper than that. The most personal intimacy of the incarnation of God is that He became one of us. Look at verse 10. It was fitting, for it was fitting for Him, for whom are all things, and through him whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. That is a hard verse. It was fitting for Him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory. That speaks of God the Father to perfect the author of their salvation. That speaks of Jesus the Son. God is the Father. God is the the one who, who for whom are all things and through whom are all things. But He must perfect the author of our salvation, Jesus. Whoa. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. If Jesus is God, wouldn't He already be perfect? How can He be perfected if He is already God Himself? Well, pastor, you're assuming that Jesus is God. And so is the pastor who wrote Hebrews. Go back at chapter 1, verse 3. Look at this. He is the radiance of His glory. The exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. The pastor has already established that Jesus is God. Without question. In fact, the reason why he does that in the first three verses or so of this sermon is because the rest of the sermon depends on it. If you go into the rest of Hebrews without knowing that Jesus is God, you will not understand the rest of Hebrews. You will lose the concepts that are being laid out before you. So we've got to understand to get that Jesus is God. Jesus came as God in the flesh. The Hebrew sermon begins this way so we will carry it through with us. And Paul said as much. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. Not counting their trespasses against them. And He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Okay, so Jesus is God, but here it says that God perfects the author of our salvation. So how do you perfect one who is already perfect? And the answer is very simple. Through sufferings. Through sufferings. When he's talking about the perfecting of the author of our salvation, he is not talking about the nature or character of Jesus. He's not talking about moral impeccability or innate infallibility. He's not dealing with the ramifications of Jesus as perfect God. It's not the character of Christ that is perfected here. It's the authorship that is perfected. Note that again. In bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation. Let me put it this way. Jesus became perfectly qualified to be the author of our salvation. He became qualified. Through the sufferings, developed the qualifications to be in that position as author of our salvation. In other words, point number one, sermon number one, in His humanity... Jesus was the consummate captain. The consummate captain. Now if you're a note taker, jot this down. In His humanity, Jesus was the consummate captain. That word author that we see, author of salvation, is also translated captain. It's translated pioneer. It's translated one who takes the lead. He is all of that. Consummate captain, perfect pioneer, take the lead trailblazer. He authored our salvation by going first, and in so doing, perfected it. 
He was perfected as the author through His sufferings. Now this is going to make more sense as we go. But F.F. Bruce said, listen, in the passion of our Lord, that is in the crucifixion of Jesus, we see the very heart of God laid bare. Nowhere is God more fully or more worthily revealed as God than in this, the sufferings of Jesus. But that's where this authorship of salvation is perfected. You might say the cross was the consummation of the human experience of suffering. That the complete picture of the love of God, the perfect picture, is Jesus on the cross. The perfect explanation of our salvation, and He became perfectly fitted as our Savior through His sufferings. Which is what is being described here. That we might see the love of God. For God proved His love in this, and yet in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so He was perfected as author of our salvation. And the picture now becomes even more personal than that. Look at verse 11. For both He who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all from one, for which reason He's not ashamed to call them brethren. Rick, you left out the word Father. I know. Intentionally, because it's not there. Remember that when you're studying through the Bible, if you see a word that's in italics, it's, it's given by the translators to either help the flow of the sentence or to try and help some kind of understanding, maybe in a word that, a Greek word that is bigger than a single word, and so they'll add some words to try and give more sense of meaning behind it. But the problem with putting the word Father in verse 11 is it takes us to a place that I don't believe the author wants us to go. It can be misleading. It sounds like he's saying Jesus was created just like you. That He was fashioned. That He was made. That He was not pre-existent. That He was not actually God prior to becoming man. But that He was created by God. Listen to it again. Both He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. Well, it sounds like Jesus and Rick were both created beings. But we've already established... Jesus is God, and therefore eternal, both before and after. Therefore pre-existent. And so the phrase is not that He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, it's that they are all from one. That is, they have a commonality. The phrase in the Hebrew is ek ice, which means they are all of one. They are all of one kind, of one stock. God became of the same stock as you and me. He became like us. Are you with me? In the incarnation. You might say this, in His humanity. This is sermon number two. In His humanity, Jesus shared a common connection. And I love this. Because if Jesus were here this morning, and He is, present with us, He would not look at you and call you child, disciple, distant follower, servant, slave. He would call you brothers and sisters. And it is one of the stunning realities of the incarnation of the one of usness of God in sharing our humanity to the point that Jesus refers to you and me as his siblings. It blows my mind. He looks at me and he says, Hey, Rick, bro. He looks at his sisters, he looks at us as his siblings. Someone said to him in Matthew 12, 47, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. They're seeking to speak with you. But Jesus said, Who's my mother? And who are my brothers? And to my Catholic friends, I would say, Jesus never elevated Mary among the brethren. She was just one of the many. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward the disciples, he said, Behold my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Siblings. In the incarnation, he developed this common connection with his brothers and sisters, anyone who would simply follow after 
God. Now, the pastor explains this bond of brotherhood by drawing off of three more Hebrew scriptures. We've already seen several in the first chapter and even in the second so far. Now there are three more that he adds. And the first one is from Psalm 22. Look at verse 12. He is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. That's Jesus talking. Well, Rick, you said it was Psalm 22. Exactly. Psalm 22 was written by David, spoken by Jesus. Psalm 22 is filled with the words of Christ. And no first century Jewish Christian would have missed this reference. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 were prime gospel teaching texts out of the Old Testament in the early church. They should be for the church today too. And a Jewish Christian would read Psalm 22 and recognize Jesus all over the place and that it is Jesus who is doing the speaking Though quoted by David, David inspired by the Spirit of Christ to write the thoughts of Jesus on the cross that would happen a thousand years later. It is mind-boggling, and I can prove it to you. Psalm 22, verse 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, who said that? But Jesus on the cross. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen: They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. They pierced my hands and my feet. I mean, who who would say that? And then finally down in verse 22 of Psalm 22, I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. Well, guess who's saying that? Jesus is. And in this remarkable one of usness, He now says, guess what? When you worship, I'm worshiping. When you are gathered together in praise, I'm there. And not only am I there as some... Not some esoteric, mystical, spiritual thing. I'm there in presence. Where two or three are gathered together in my name. I'm there, Jesus said. I will be with you to the very end of the age, Jesus said. I am there among you. I am there with you. And when we worship, He is singing and praising right alongside us. Do you believe that? Do you think about that? I thought about it all morning because I knew I was going to talk about this. And driving over here, I was reminded, Jesus is going to be here today. He will be in and among us and singing and praising God. Where is He? You know, first service, I'm looking around. Is He in the front row? Is He back a couple? Is He getting coffee and donuts? Where, where is He when the worship starts? He's right here. And not only is He right here, He is right next to each and every one of you and me. And that thought, that thought is motivating. I think if we really bought that, it would affect and change even our our attitudes of of showing up. And and I'm not saying that to make you guilty if if you came late today. That's not my point. My point is that we have a mentality, that we would develop a mentality that Jesus is in here singing praise. It's not just Rachel and the worship team. It's Jesus Christ worshiping among His brothers and sisters. And how excited He is when you walk in the door, when He sees you there. Oh good, she's here. Alright, He came. We're worshiping together. And by the way, Psalm 22 verse 3 tells us this. Jesus still speaking through the pen of David. You are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. Enthroned is inhabit. God inhabits our worship. God is part of the praise. He's here with us. And that because of the incarnation of Jesus, the one who became so like us that he would call us brothers and sisters. And he says, bros, sisses, sistren. Let's praise together. It's a marvelous thought. Now, you've heard me say before how incredibly important context is. And so we see the context in verse 12 of Psalm 22 that this is Jesus speaking. It's Jesus speaking from the cross. It's Jesus speaking after the cross. It's Jesus declaring that He would proclaim the name of God to His brethren and in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Okay, that's Jesus. We get that. What's the context of the next verse? Now this is important, and I talk about context from time to time. 
Because we don't want to be a people who rip verses out just to prove a point. We don't want to say, well, this verse, uh, it fits my agenda, so I'll use this. I've told you before, I was part of a church body where in in preaching we kind of used all the translations. And it was whatever translation fit the point best. That is such a misguided way of preaching and teaching. We want to be in context. We want to know what the Scriptures mean and what they say, where they say it, which is why I've told you, if you're reading a verse and you're not sure about it, go back several verses and read into it. And then read beyond it. Get the context. Well, guess what? The Bible does that. Every Older Testament quote in the New Testament is contextual. That is, what it means in the Hebrew Scriptures is what it means in the New Testament. It's just now being explained. But the context remains. And I'm telling you all this for this reason. Look at verse 13. He says, And again, I will put my trust in Him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Now you can skate past that and go, Okay, well, that that's, uh, must be Jesus too. What's the next verse say? And you'll miss how profound a statement this is. There are two more verses he quotes right here in verse 13. Isaiah 8, verse 17. And Isaiah 8, verse 18. And in quoting those two verses, if we know what the context is of those verses, it changes our understanding. Isaiah wrote them, inspired by Christ, but Isaiah was having a hard time. The prophet was getting bad reception. Oh, not from his radio, from his people. They weren't listening. They already were turning off their their minds and their thoughts. Turning away from God, rejecting what the prophet was bringing. He should have known because God said, this is what's going to happen in Isaiah chapter 6. And now in Isaiah chapter 8, that's what's going on as the people are rejecting the message already. Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter 6. He says in Matthew 13, 14, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You'll keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear. They've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. In Mark's version, Jesus says, and I would forgive them. Because healing and forgiveness are the same thing. But now, in Isaiah chapter 8, the context of verse 13 here, that's what's happening. The people have already hardened their hearts. They're not seeing. They're not hearing. They're rejecting the teaching of Isaiah. And so Isaiah, in response, doesn't just get bummed out, discouraged, and silent. He becomes courageous. And he says, Isaiah 8.17, I will wait for the Lord. Wait, Rick, it says here, I will put my trust in Him. Same thing. I will put my trust in Him is the Greek translation from the Septuagint of the Hebrew Scriptures. And the reality is that the Hebrew word for I will wait for the Lord, wait, is also trust. It's the same word. It's the same concept. I will wait on Him. I will wait for Him. I will trust in Him. And the Hebrew pastor now quotes Isaiah's confidence in this. Because, get this, because to trust in God is to be christ like. That's what Jesus is like. He waits. He trusts. He has confidence. In fact, point number three, in His humanity, Jesus took a confident course. Knowing ahead of time the people would be blind, they would be deaf, their hearts would be hard, knowing that there would be so little response, yet He took a confident course. He set His face like flint. He went to Jerusalem. He went to the cross. He kept that course all the way to the garden, to the cross, and to the grave. Don't let this be theology. Let this be real for you. Imagine what it would be like to be God, to then wear human flesh, to walk as a human, and to experience the rejection that Jesus experienced. The rejection of those who you came to save. Matthew 13.58 says, Jesus did not do many miracles in Nazareth because of their unbelief. Well, that's great. His hometown. The people who knew Him best. He... He couldn't do miracles there. Because they wouldn't believe Him. Even if He did, they wouldn't believe Him. 
rejected by His own. And in fact, John chapter 1, verse 10 says He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. How does that feel? Think of the humanity of Christ. How does that feel to be utterly rejected, not only by a world that should know that you created, but by your own people who should know you? What would it be like to walk in the door of your house and be rejected by your own family? See, that's what Jesus experienced in His humanity, in the Incarnation, and even on the cross. When He cried out, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. Full on trusting God. In the garden when He said, not as I will, but as You will. Full trusting God. And even while humanity, in those moments, even His closest disciples were split in the scene, Jesus was trusting in God. He had a confident course. He had His eyes set on the Father. He would not do anything but what the Father wanted Him to do. Absolute trust. And you know what He asked of you? What He asked of me? Just that we would trust Him. That's it. Do you trust Him? I'm not talking about some, again, esoteric concept here. Are you willing to trust in Him? To put your faith in Him. Now, the next verse that he quotes is from the next verse in Isaiah chapter 8. It's from verse 18. And again, Behold, I am the children whom God has given me. Okay, what's the context of that? Isaiah is speaking, and Isaiah is talking about his own sons. I'm going to trust in you. I am the children whom God has given me. Well, who were they? Isaiah had two children. Their names were Sha'ar Yashub, expectant mothers, jot these down, and Machar Shalal Hashbaz. I love it. I don't know how you call him to dinner. Machar Shalal Hashbaz! Is he speaking in tongues? What's going on there? Sha'ar Yashub was Isaiah's firstborn. His name means a remnant shall return. His name was a prophecy. Partially fulfilled in the return of the Jews from Babylon that would happen 200 years later, a remnant did return, just like Isaiah's firstborn name declared. Isaiah's secondborn, Mahar Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, that's from chapter 8, verse 3, and it means swift the spoil and speedy the prey. What's that mean? Before Isaiah's second-born son was old enough to say Abba, Assyria had swiftly destroyed northern Israel. So his name was a prophecy. Isaiah saying, my sons have names of prophecy. Behold, I and the children God has given me, Isaiah saying, were a testimony of what God was going to do. Guess what? So are you. This applies to Jesus in that I and the children God has given me, Jesus says, are witnesses, have testimony of what He's doing. Number four, if you're jotting these down, in His humanity, Jesus attracted confirming children. Confirming children. Children who belong to Him, who who are named as living testimonials of His suffering, of His death, of His glory, of His honor. That's our role. If you bear the name Christian, Acts 11.26 says at Antioch they were first called Christians, little Christ, you could say children of Christ. And bearing the very name Christian makes you a witness of Jesus. A witness for Jesus. What did he say in Acts chapter 1? Behold, I want you to remain in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high and you will be my witnesses. You will give testimony for me. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10, and I've never really read it this way before, he said, we always carry about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be seen in our body. We walk around as Christians bearing the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Gospel. We are named Christian and that name means something. Does it mean something to you? And if so, are you a testimony to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Now, as we said before, 
The power of death is the single most common yet frightening reality of life. In all our lives, we know one thing. Death is coming. Death is coming. Oh, death is coming. It is like an unyielding juggernaut going for the jugular. Death is coming. Have a nice day. (laughs) My friends, in His humanity, number five, Jesus freed us, His confirming children, from confining chains. He freed us from the confining chains. Verse 14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of, that is, experienced the same, that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. I point out again that the Bible declares the devil as an actual being. Not as some, you know, spiritualized concept, not as the dark side of the force. Not as generic evil. No, the devil is a being. That he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Don't raise your hands, but answer this in your heart. Are you afraid of death this morning? I used to be. I am not anymore. Now I'm afraid what would happen to my family if I died. I mean, they desperately need me. <laughs> Are you afraid of death? When you, when you think about the concept of, of dying, does that... Does, I, don't, I don't want to think about that. I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to go there. And that's our culture, is it not? I mean, our, our culture does this. I already mentioned this earlier. Ignores death. Denies death. Doesn't want to think about death. And then someone dies. And we have to go to the funeral. And we don't like it. Death. After first service, a sister came up to me and said, would you, just, would you just pray with me because my brother is dying. He may already have died this morning. But he knew Jesus. And he's going home. She had tears in her eyes. And we stood there and we prayed and we thanked God for the assurance that the confining chains that, that hold everybody in slavery until Jesus comes along, until we know Jesus, we are enslaved by that horrific fear. And if you have that fear this morning, you need to know Jesus. Because He crushes those chains. Understand that it was humanity that sinned. Right? I mean, we get that. Do we all understand that everybody does wrong at some point in their lives that humanity sins and not God? And humanity has to pay for sin. Otherwise, justice is a farce. I shared this with you, I think, last week or the week before, that we all want everybody else judged, we just don't want to be judged ourselves. You know? Hey, if God doesn't judge all sin, then God is not fair. God is not just. He must judge sin. And so death is the judgment for all sin. And only in Jesus is that death broken. This concept is huge, at least it was for me. Death, get this, death only has dominion over sinners. Because sin is the reason death entered the world, right? So death only has power over those who are sinners. Romans 5.12 Just as through one man sin entered the world, that is Adam, and death entered through sin, so death spread to all men because all men sinned. And he goes on to write in Romans 5, you don't have to have sinned like Adam sinned. You're going to sin. And if you sin, you deserve death because death is the punishment for sin. Death is the judgment for all sin. Genesis 2.17, God said, if you violate my one rule, in the day that you eat of it, you will die. Well, Adam and Eve didn't die that day. No, they started dying that day. In that moment of sinning against God, death entered the world and the process of decay began. And yet, amazingly, so quickly, after the fact, Genesis 3.15, God pronounced in cursing the devil, pronounced a glorious promise, He, that is Jesus, will bruise you, that is the devil, on the head. It's going to kill you, man. But He also said, and you shall bruise him on the heel. 
We've talked about how that bruising came when the nail went right through His feet. Here's the point. There is beauty and there is wisdom in this. It had to be a man who died for our sins. It had to be a man. Because it's man who sinned. Woman who sinned. It had to be one of us. God could not just come down and ask God just go on the cross and die for us because it wouldn't have worked. It has to be a man who pays for the sin of mankind. A perfect man. And it's through the perfect man that God crushes death. And this is the most amazing thing to me. When the devil bruised him on the heel, when Jesus was nailed up on the cross, the devil had no right to do it. Because Jesus was perfect. Death had no right over Jesus Christ because He was perfect. Then you might say, well, so why then did He die? Because He took our sin on Him. Which made it even possible. But the reality remains that when He died, though He bore all of the sin of all of mankind, not one iota of that sin was His. So when He died, a violation occurred. Death is only for sinners. But Jesus was sinless. Guess what happened to death? He busted it wide open. When we talk about Him breaking the chains of sin and death, He did it because while He bore our sin, bringing about the death, He was perfect and death could not hold Him. And so He busted the chains of sin and death. And those who believe in Him, who trust in Him, we become saved. And we no longer fear the chains, the slavery of death. He's the consummate captain who with a common connection took a confident course attracting, confirming children who He freed from the confining chains of death. Are you with me so far? Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it back up again. Why? Because Jesus is the perfect man. And in dying, took your sin and mine on His shoulders. Verse 16. For assuredly, He does not give help to angels, but He gives help to the descendant of Abraham. You might jot this down in the margins of your Bible, but give help to here is literally take hold of. He does not take hold of angels. No, He takes hold of the descendants of Abraham. John chapter 10 is where Jesus said, Behold, I have you in my hands. No one can snatch you out of my hands. He takes hold of us. I love that. But it says literally that He gives help to, He takes hold of the descendant or the seed of Abraham. Well, who's that? The Jews through Isaac are descendants of Abraham. Muslims through Ishmael have long claimed that descendancy. The Bible tells us who he's talking about here. The Bible is very clear about who the seed of Abraham is, the seed who he gives help to, who he takes hold of. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify Gentiles by faith, preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Hey, you want to be freed from the slavery of the fear of death? Trust in Jesus. Put your faith in Him. how, How will that make me not fear death anymore? Trust me, it will. Trusting Him removes the fear of death. Takes away the slavery factor. Trust Him. Trust Him, not just in word, but in life. In how you live. Trusting Jesus means you're going to do it His way. And by the way, His way is always better. And trusting in Jesus means you're going to follow His lead. And His lead is a good lead. Trusting in Jesus means you're going to wait on the Lord. And you're going to seek to live His way, not your way, not my way. Verse 17, Therefore, He had to be made like His brethren in all things, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, 
to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be like us. He had to be one of us. He had to be a human, a son of man. Otherwise, the payment could not have applied. Now, this whole statement of him being a merciful and faithful high priest, most of the whole rest of the book is about that. The rest of this sermon about the high priestly nature of Jesus. Twelve times the author is going to refer to Jesus as our high priest. But in this, the perfect high priest is both the exact representation of God, chapter 1, verse 3, and the exact representation of man. He is both divinity and humanity. And you've got to understand that because neither one of those two attributes of Jesus is negotiable. You can't say, well, I believe He's God, but I don't think He was ever really man. You can't say, well, I think He was a human, but God, no, I don't believe that. If you deny either one of these attributes, you deny His ability to make propitiation for the people. Propitiation? What's that? Well, the author is going to go through that and explain that to us and what this whole connection is with the high priest. But right now, I just want you to focus on this. We'll get there to the other, not today, but in a future study. Understand that he became a merciful and faithful high priest. Merciful and faithful. Faithful in that he understands us. Merciful in that he did what no other high priest could do. Get the picture of the high priest in mind. I don't know if you've ever studied this, but the high priest had some very unique clothing that he wore. And specifically, when he went in to offer the incense or to work the table of showbread or to keep the lamps lit, when he went into the holy place, he would wear, the high priest would wear, representing the people, a breastplate. And on that beautiful breastplate were 12 precious stones, each stone inscribed with the name of one of the tribes of Israel. On his shoulders, he had onyx stones that were kind of, you know how uh, shoulder pads were kind of big in the 80s? Kind of that idea. But they were onyx stones. On one onyx stone was written six of the names of the tribes of Israel. On the other onyx stone were written six of the names of the tribes of Israel. So that he bore their names on his shoulders. He, He bore their names before him on his heart. The high priest did. Representing the people to God. Jesus comes along. And number six, in our notes, in His humanity, He bore the cruelty of the cross. He didn't wear onyx stones on His shoulders, but the oppressive stigma of the cross itself. He didn't have precious stones on His body. No, He had punishing scars and marks Wounds of our sin, even though He was sinless. And this brings me to what I think is the most penetrating point of the one of us-ness of Jesus. Verse 18. For since He Himself was tempted in that which He has suffered, He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Because He Himself was tempted. People don't like to hear this. People actually, we say, I know how you feel. You ever said that to someone and they look at you and go, no you don't. Someone is struggling with cancer, you say, I know how you feel. Well, no you don't unless you've had cancer. Someone's going through a messy divorce. You say, I know how you feel. No, you don't. Not unless you've gone through a divorce. Someone's dealing with some kind of agony, some pain, some rejection, some hurt. And we say, I know how you feel. And they look back and go, no, you don't. And you know what the truth is? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. We have all had the human experience of sorrow. We have all known the human experience of rejection. We have all experienced the human experience of suffering. These things are common to humanity. I may not have had cancer, but I've dealt with debilitating illness. Oh, I may not have gone through a divorce, but I have lost a dear friend. 
We all have experienced these things. We share in these things. And when Jesus looks at you because of His one of usness, because He is God incarnate, the Word made flesh, a human being like you and like me, though He was divine, when He says, I know how you feel, I can say, He really does. He really does. The author here says, He Himself was tempted in that which He suffered. And because of this, He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He says, let me help you here. I get it. I understand. And I can say, yes, you do. Yes, you do. I know that you know how I feel. Even when I am tempted. Now, people say, wait a minute. Hold on. You're telling me that Jesus was tempted to sin? How how is that possible? Matthew 4 1 says Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is controversial. I get it. It's uncomfortable. And for 2,000 years, people have argued over this in the church. Is Jesus tempted? Is he temptable? Is that even possible? And the two sides say it this way. One side says, I want a God who's perfect. Alright, He is. You got it? But there are others who say, I want a God who gets me. He does. Absolutely. Well, but, but, but James, James says, James chapter 3 verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. There! Well, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Which is it? We're going to break that down more next week. But I'll give you this for now. He was tempted, but sinless. We assume that to be tempted or tested or tried, that sin is automatically implied. Not so. Temptation can happen and there not be any sin. Some of you have been tempted and not acted on it and not sinned because of it. But this debatable point, this this difficulty was, was Jesus tempted? Listen, this is all I want you to get this morning. Wherever you fall on the issue, the temptations of Jesus, you have to know this, caused Him suffering. Whatever you think about what it means that Jesus was tempted, the temptations caused Him suffering. And I would submit to you, the temptations in the life of Jesus caused Him more suffering than you or I will ever understand. Why? Because Jesus is the most righteous person who has ever lived. What do you mean? Charles Spurgeon said, Many persons are tempted, but do not suffer in being tempted. When ungodly men are tempted, the bait is to their taste, and they swallow it greedily. Temptation is a pleasure to them. Indeed, they sometimes tempt the devil to tempt them. Temptation for someone who wants to be tempted isn't difficult at all. Doesn't bring about any suffering whatsoever. Someone who wants to do something wrong, when the temptation to do that wrong comes up, they go, hooray! And off they go. And it's not a difficulty. The reality is, the more the sense of righteousness, the more suffering the temptation brings. Spurgeon said, good men suffer when they are tempted, and the better they are, the more they suffer. Jesus Christ, the perfect man, Righteous God, but completely human, walked this earth and suffered more because of the sin in this world than anybody else. Because righteousness suffers where there is unrighteousness. I mean, this is a really lame and small example by comparison, but this morning as I turned on the news on my phone and I'm eating my breakfast, I had to turn it off because it made me sick. I am so tired of it. 
the vitriol and the hatred and the accusations and the blame and the lies, it's all just constant. And there was something in my spirit, and I would submit to you not because of me, but because of Jesus, there was a certain rightness in my spirit that said, I can't deal with this. I don't need this. And I suffered for it. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to elevate Pastor Rick. There are plenty of temptations that I welcome and shouldn't. But the more righteous a person, the more temptation causes suffering because they know the end game. Jesus, think about this, man. He walked the earth. And as He did so in human flesh, knowing the outcome of every sin, when He saw the temptations, whether it was against Himself or anyone else, what, how do you think He felt when He saw Judas tempted to betray Him? You think that was easy on Jesus? Suffering. And sorrow. He was called a man of sorrows. And the seventh and final point is simply this. In His humanity, Jesus lived out a compassionate comprehension. Fully comprehending all of the, the pain and the sorrow and the anguish and the mess that our sin makes. And don't think that you're exempt. If you sin, the consequence will continue to roll until there is redemption and forgiveness. Even then, there is still consequence, right? Even then, stuff that I did years ago still impacts me today. Though I've been forgiven, but in this flesh, I still have to deal. And Jesus knew all that. And when temptation came, when it swirled all around Him, be it in His life or in the life of the apostles, or in the lives of His friends or family, how hard was that for Him? He suffered in it because of the depth of His compassion. And the pastor's point here, I believe, is not to say Jesus was temptable or not temptable. The point was that Jesus suffered, and suffered greatly in His humanity. And He did it willingly. Why? (laughs) So that we know He gets us. So that we can be assured He has got us. And so that we can walk realizing He will get us through. He gets us. He's got us. He will get us through. And the question is not, what if God was one of us? He was. The question is, will you trust Him? Lord Jesus first. It is almost overwhelming to try to comprehend the degree to which You suffered because of sin in the world. Not Your sin, O perfect One. Perfect Son of Man. Perfect Son of God. The One who completed the authorship of our salvation in Your life and person and being and actions. Lord Jesus... Thank You. Thank You for what You did. Thank You for becoming one of us. For the harm that You took for it, the pain that You bore, the sorrow and the suffering that were Yours because of that decision to become one of us so that You could save us. What an awesome thing. Oh Jesus, we don't deserve Your salvation and Your grace. But when I think about what You went through to extend it, I want to take it. I do not want to deny You the grace that You bought with Your blood. I don't want to be among those who reject You because we are so caught up in our own lives. I don't want to be known as as one that You came to but didn't even recognize You or one of Your own but didn't receive You. When we stop and and think about what you did and the vastness of the love of God in all of this, it, Lord, it should shake us to the core. I pray that it does. I pray this morning right now. I have brothers and sisters sitting in here right now who are swimming in sin and temptation. Each of us have our issues, Father. We know what they are. Lord, would You lift our eyes just long enough to see what You suffered to release us from this? To bring freedom 
to crush death, to make possible a, a life lived with joy and peace and love. Father, look down on our hearts this morning. Look into us deeply and convict us for the sake of turning us on to Your grace, Your mercy, Your forgiveness. As You are in Christ reconciling the world to Yourself. Oh, reconcile us, Jesus, this morning. We pray in Jesus' name.